Hello, and thanks for coming back to the Naked Farmers podcast. I am always intrigued when I meet a new farmer over the miracle of modern technology, just how fascinating their lives and views are. I learn with every conversation and I do hope you too, too. That's why we do the Naked Farmers podcast, to try and share the stories and voices, wisdom and frustrations of farming in Australia with the people who benefit from their efforts, you and me the eaters. It's a huge time commitment. Editing each conversation takes around 20 hours. So if you like what we do here, please help others to subscribe and join the conversations. And if you can take a moment from your busy life to write us a review, wherever you get your podcast from, I really would appreciate it. Angus and Kelly White farm a 12,500 hectare property, Wyndham Station. That's about 30,000 acres for those of us who still use the old money. They also lease the family property, Willow Point, from Gus's mum, and that's another 19,000 hectares, another 47,000 acres, Tucked into the farthest corner of New South Wales at Wentworth, it is almost equidistant from Melbourne and Adelaide where the Murray and the Darling Rivers meet. So we're going to get another interesting perspective on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. We're also going to talk about drought, regenerative agriculture, healthy soils, mulesing, polo, making belts and bridles and more. Come along for the ride. Hello, Angus. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today. Before we dig into the deep stuff, can you paint me a picture of your property and tell me how your family came to be here? And how the hell do you fence a property as big as that? Uh, I'm just laughing away here in the background, Sophie, listening to your description. It doesn't seem so absurd to us because I guess I've just grown up with it. To me, it's normal. I'm fourth generation here. My middle name is Wyndham, just to give you an idea of the connection. So that's a family name. Even though I grew up on Willow Point, we bought this property we live at now from my dad's first cousin in 1998. I'm not great on history. Our family came into this area early 1900s. My great-grandmother was unfortunately died in the Spanish flu epidemic in about 1918, uh, 1919, somewhere there, when my grandma was nine. And so it would have been tough times and a lot tougher dealing with the virus then than now. I'm not sure why this area was selected. It's, it's a beautiful part of the world, though. I guess everyone says that where they live. On the, we live on the banks of the Anabranch River, which is a beautiful riverine environment. It's a, you know, it's dry at the moment, has been for a number of years. That just makes us appreciate it when it's got water in it more. And it would have naturally been dry for a long period of time. My dad was seven before he saw water in the river. Mitchell, our son, was seven before he saw water in the river. So we have had periods of dry. We have gone through a significant dry period 
now we've got some rain and we've got some lovely grass going in too. It makes you appreciate it when you've when you've seen the other side. Um, and as far as fencing, well, it's the same with any sort of fencing, I guess, Sophie. You just put your head down and keep moving forward. And um, when there's larger kilometres to do, you just move forward probably faster and longer. And with the right equipment. It's all about the tools, isn't it, really? Uh, with most things we do, we try and minimise our footprint. So most of our fencing here is three-wire electric fencing, about 40 metres between posts with one dropper in between. It's quite cheap fencing. And then I can ride over the fence wherever I want on a motorbike so I don't do gates because I'm lazy. What do you mean, ride over the fence? I just put my front tyre on the fence and ride over the top of it. Oh, you just drop it? That's how I save doing gates, Sophie. That's cheating, isn't it? No. Imagine I ride up to a fence, a dropper in between posts, and there might be 40 metres between posts, and I put my front tyre on the fence. It pushes the fence down. I put my foot on the wire and then ride over the fence. Wow, that's amazing. And I saw on Twitter that you've got this thing that you've got on the ute which sort of spaces out the the wires and kind of feeds it all out. So what is that? Oh, that's a Western fence, which is a Gallagher company. That bit of fencing is for exclusion-type fencing, so it's an eight-wire fence with significant electricity running through it that's going to stop the migration and immigration of kangaroos and dogs and goats and all our livestock, um, just so we can have some control over total grazing pressure. Um, you know, our kangaroos cause us enormous angst and have done in the last few years especially. Sophie, when, when things are dry and you can destock, however, we can't destock to kangaroos to the extent we would like to, and you see them... Not just eating all that grass and our profits, that's one thing. When it got really dry, just driving around every day and seeing kangaroos dying was really upsetting. And so we need to get a control over our numbers so that we don't have to go through that. I just saw a tweet from Peter saying that some big company had decided that they weren't going to use kangaroo leather anymore. And I was like, if there's one thing we don't have a shortage of... <laughs> It's kangaroos. Yeah, yeah, and it's beautiful leather. It's it's to everyone's loss that we no longer use kangaroo leather. This I find so frustrating is that we're we're not harnessing the natural resources. You know, whether it's the explosion of the camel population or um, kangaroos or whatever, we're just all out of balance, aren't we? We are. I think it's a concern why we don't use kangaroos and I, I think it's an unrealistic concern that we might belittle or cheapen kangaroos in some way if we start eating significant quantities of them. Whereas from a farmer's perspective, because we don't eat them, we haven't got control over them and we have to watch them die, we appear to be be encouraged to treat them like weeds or pests, which is really upsetting because regardless of whether we eat kangaroos or don't eat kangaroos, they're an absolutely beautiful animal. But they're also very high-protein, lean meat that could be harvested. They're better for 
um, soil in terms of like a lighter footprint. They're not compacting soil. So rather than farmers and natives being in competition, we need some better way of meeting our meat needs and our protein needs as omnivores and potentially managing landscape better if Australians would take up kangaroo meat as a as a viable protein source. I would uh, hold a different perspective about their land management. Kangaroos in large numbers can do significant damage and they certainly do compact the land. Yes, they've got a softer foot. However, it's mouths that cause the biggest problem in compaction because bare ground will compact. Um, it doesn't matter how light a footprint over the top of it. And when mouths are on an area for too long, then they, they eat too much of the vegetation. You've got bare ground that will compact. So kangaroos can cause that too. Kangaroos have done exceptionally well under our management and they have increased in numbers astronomically. They're probably more often than not 10 or 15 times as many kangaroos as what they're so-called used to be. So people choosing to eat kangaroos or choosing to have kangaroo leather on their footwear or wear it would be really, really helpful. There's nothing more distressing from a farmer's perspective than having to shoot kangaroos and then waste that resource by leaving it in the paddock. That is really distressing, almost as distressing as watching them die in a drought because they've built up to really, really high numbers and there's nothing much we can do about them. Now, last time on the podcast, we were talking to James Stacey about the peri-urban fringe in South Australia and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and his perspective on that. And you're obviously much further up the basin and close to the Menindee Lake system, which saw horrific fish kills, which made global news in 2019. Can you talk to me about your view of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and how it affects your community? There wouldn't be very many people in our community that did not depend on either the Murray or Darling Rivers in some way for their water source around here. It is absolute lifeblood of this dry landscape we live in, Sophie, so super critical and has a really significant impact, wet and or dry. We're currently in the middle of drought. Uh, Everything's very dry and and trees are dying around us. And then then they see a big fish kill. Um, It's going to create enormous angst, and it did. Like, it was really upsetting for communities around here to witness that. I've witnessed a fish kill in, in our river before, uh, it, it is, in a way, quite a natural part of a, a drying river. It's not a dying river, a drying river and a drying lake. So you will witness fish kills. It's not very nice. It smells just astronomically bad. And it's so upsetting to see, you know, really old men of the river or the, the Murray Cod, huge Murray Cod dying that, is always going to tear at the heartstrings. I don't think anything's crueler than Mother Nature, and that's not being harsh. 
things happen in nature that are seemingly exceptionally cruel. I'm not saying it's no one's fault. It possibly has been exacerbated by management upstream. I'm certainly not blaming anyone, and I just understand and really empathise with everyone in our community that went through that heartache. That's why I stopped being a vegan and why I stopped being a vegetarian, was I, I saw how cruel Mother Nature is. And so you're saying that the, the Menindee fish kills were the byproduct of the drought and the drying of the river, and you're still suffering really with this extended drought. You have a very interesting perspective on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So if you could tell us about that, that would be great. Well, I guess my perspective is that in each reach of the river, there is different management required to make sure that river can be healthy and productive again. And that every community that lives along the river needs to realise, understand and be part of the solution. It's no good constantly blaming people upstream from you because then you become the victim. We need to focus more on what we can do in our own little region and keep connected and communicating with upstream and downstream users to make sure we're doing what's right on the bigger picture and on the larger scale. I guess I just see in a lot of media, in a lot of discussions about the Murray-Darling Basin, we seem to maybe focus on communities that are just screaming at upstream users and saying, you're stealing all our water, you're stealing all our water. It's been exceptionally dry in that northern catchment, in where we get most of our yield which we don't get much local yield in our catchment around here. Most of it comes from northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. It's been exceptionally dry for everyone and that's had an impact on... People are already under pain, so it's easy to lash out and blame someone else for your situation you're in. And that's what I've seen a lot of. And I don't see Murray-Darling Basin and New South Wales... DPI or whatever they're called this week, harnessing local communities and working with them so that they can be part of the solution together. It's always going to be much easier to resolve an issue where you're communicating with people, you're standing um, shoulder to shoulder with, working on improving that landscape. That's, that's always going to make for a much better, much, better, much healthier conversation. You said something about the allocation of water being triggered by rain events, that the triggers for release and purchase of water could be better managed. Is that right? From a community perspective, we've got to make sure our focus on our management of the river is around making the river and communities healthier and the whole environment healthier. The water trade and it seems to be muddying those decisions and maybe not helping make sure that decisions are made to the betterment of the environment. 
the river is not a fixed business like a, a National Australia Bank or, or, or like a large um, company. It fluctuates enormously year to year and there needs to be good decisions made around the environment and communities and sometimes that may impact on production and other times we're going to make decisions that are production decisions that that might cost some of the environment a bit. It's, it's the ebb and flow and it's trying to balance it. I just really worry about when decisions are made. There's so much money riding on it that um, sometimes decisions don't get made. I will just allow the market to resolve the issue. Well, I reckon the market will create a lot bigger problem potentially than it will fix. Do you have irrigated paddocks? Where do you get your water from? So we're a stock and domestic water user. We do have a small irrigation licence that we don't use. We, we trade that in some years if we don't require that water. That's a, a benefit of us running a closed system where we don't waste any water. The Anna Branch used to be provided water from Menindee Lakes and we went through significant dry times, the same as what is currently happening on the Darling and has happened over the last few years. So we've been through that heartache. The end of the 90s through the early 2000s, we were front and centre in that heartache and blaming everyone else. We got together as a group and have built a pipeline. So our water comes from the Murray, from the Darling, and we've restored a more natural flow regime in the Anna Branch, which is very important to that river and is now very important to our community because we now value that we can have a naturally flowing river and seeing some health benefits in our fish species and yabby numbers and birds and wildlife when water comes back into our river. So you've done that off your own bat within your community. That's not part of the plan. Uh, in a way it was because the New South Wales government purchased the water. This was done in 2006 and we had the opportunity. It, was, it created a lot of division within our community. Our community, you know, my mother still considers me at times the bastard son who sold the river. It created a lot of division at the time. We can't run a grazing business without having access to water 24-7. It's not negotiable. So from us, from a business perspective, securing a water supply and doing what is, uh, you know, restoring a natural flow regime into our river and, and reversing some of the degradation that permanent water had caused in our river seemed like a good decision at the time and, and my thoughts haven't changed on that. There's, there's so much conflict about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. There's so many different opinions. What, what do you think is the best way for a large number of farmers with very different operations, very different water constraints and water needs to work with government in a holistic way so that... We ensure food security, we ensure water security, we ensure the health of these rivers. I don't know what the, um, maybe what, 
what it might look like as far as uh, organisation or whatever it's called that would do that. I guess the outcome I would say is you need constant reviews of all components of management of a river system and constant reviews, updating, hearing many different perspectives from people right around the basin and making sure that you constantly make good decisions. So that involves good communication, that involves talking to people that are actually on ground and having a really, really good connection with the whole of the basin. So connectivity is extremely important and decisions and timing of the decisions is also very important. I do think that what would encourage that might be a, a legal system that said to people, no decision is the worst possible decision. Business as usual, that is where you will get sued and you will get smashed. If you make a bad decision, that's far better than no decision. Because if you make a bad decision, by your review process, you can work out it was a bad decision and then replace that with a good decision. If you make no decision and you end up in a bad place, then you start blaming someone else because you can't work out how you got there. Most of the time it's because you haven't reconciled that no decision is still a decision and no decision is normally the worst possible decision. And I think that's where we need to get through to whatever organisation manages, runs, controls the Murray-Darling Basin. I'm fascinated by people's perspectives because there just seems to be so much conflict over it. But I know from our own experience dealing with Crown Lands and National Parks that you're often talking to people in cities who don't even know what you're talking about. They have no concept of the terrain, the flow, you know, the riverbank of the trees, what happens in a fire. And that's what I'm kind of hearing you say, that, that in a way government is trying to restrict and manage something that changes daily. How can that possibly happen when you're trying to harness Mother Nature, you're trying to marshal Mother Nature, and it just is not that simple? Well, I guess first up, just language, Sophie, if you try and marshal and harness Mother Nature, suggestion is that what you're doing is is working against Mother Nature, and that's always going to be fraught with danger. So... I guess I come back to this connection, connectivity, which is something that we really haven't learnt at all from our Indigenous peoples, the wonderful Aboriginal communities that lived in the basin, lived not just on our land, they lived in our land, they lived for our land. Land was part of them, they were part of the land. Their connectivity allowed them to constantly make decisions. Yes, they'd get some right. Yes, they'd get some wrong. They'd have some in between. But that diversity, and they talk about mosaic burning, you know, they'd probably try significant numbers of different methods maybe to work with 
Mother Nature to change and do what's better for the region. And so I think we owe it as part of our acknowledgement of Indigenous people to incorporate a lot of Indigenous knowledge and wisdom into our resource management and this connection with country, connection with landscape is, you can't escape it. And we've got to make sure that with new technology that comes in, it enhances our connection. It can't replace our connection. It can't be a shortcut. It needs to enhance our connection and give us better ways to understand and describe the processes that Mother Nature does. And that's extremely important, I reckon, Sophie. You said mosaic burning, and I've never heard that term before. What, what is that? You understand the term mosaic if I, you know, had a mosaic, which is many different tiles of, of different colours, of different shapes, of different sizes, and, and different intensities of colours. I guess that's just describing how um, burning would go. So a mosaic burn would be many different burns of different areas in different landscapes in different intensities, different times of year. And that more diversity of management, if we're truly after biodiversity as one of our outcomes of our land management, diversity in management is key to that. Because if you're always burned at the same time of the year, yes, you will benefit some species, that will be at the detriment of others. Whereas if you have a diverse range of management techniques and tools, like burning at different times of the year, different intensities, that's, for example, that allows you to make sure you look after a diverse range of plants and and truly we could have a biodiverse landscape. But again, that's something that we can't do because we only have a narrow burning window, don't we, within the, the prescribed fire season. And that window is getting narrower and narrower because of the drought. There are some barriers there, Sophie. How can we, um, how can we deal with those barriers? How can we um, manage within the constraints of those barriers? Or do we need to change those barriers? Do we need to set different criteria? Fire's dangerous. I don't by any means understand fire and I'm not the greatest at managing it. I'd rather use grazing to deliver outcomes. So I'd rather graze some landscapes with large mobs of stock for a short period of time to um, smash down some vegetation and, and allow the sunlight to get through to smaller plants and again, a diversity of management. So we could use a number of land management tools. It doesn't necessarily have to be fire, grazing. There's very few people that sort of remember the skills of grazing with having, you know, being able to run a large mob, say a thousand head of cattle through a hillside and just drove them around and they cattle do what cattle do. Fire's quite dangerous and we need to make sure that we manage our landscape in a way that we really want more and more people to live in our landscape. They need to be able to live out there in safety 
not in fear of their lives from fire. So again, that comes back to this connection to landscape to understand how they can manage the landscape, modify their landscape a little bit to make it safer. I was at a rangeland conference in Canberra in September. Sophie, to hear that never before in 30,000 years has so few people lived in our rangelands of Australia. So, you know, we need more people to love and care for our landscape. We don't need less. So in 2002, you decided that the way you were running the station was no longer working for your family and you decided to do things very differently from how they had been done before on that land. Can you talk to me about your exploration and foray into regenerative agriculture and your understanding of the importance of soil health? Yeah, I guess I was a fairly slow learner. It took me a while to work out that I was, you know, working only eight days a week and 27 hours a day for no money. And at that stage in about 02, I'd spent nearly 10 years involved with um, catchment management and so learnt an enormous about about riverine and, and landscape processes. So I then learnt to my sort of disgust really how degraded our landscape was becoming. I was working hard, making no money, and our landscape was degrading. I guess we just had to find another way. And I went and did a grazing for profit course, and I went into that just assuming that it was probably just because I wasn't a good enough farmer and needed to have better skills or better livestock or some way of making more money. And then came away with that, with the tool of rotational grazing as a way of reducing labour, of improving our landscape and delivering more profit. I guess that was the start of the journey, so by no means the end. If you want significant change in your outcome, you need to put energy and change in your management. So we did. We put some large mobs of stock together. We totally changed the way the land was managed to get a different outcome. And, you know, that's where we're going now. Break that down for us because obviously a lot of people won't have heard of regenerative agriculture. I mean, it is becoming a bit of a buzzword and there are lots of people who have a sense of it but not the specifics of it. So if you could explain what it is that you have changed, what infrastructure you have to put in and how you had to change your management and the results that you've seen. I guess more often than not, farmers are put in boxes of, oh, you're a sheep farmer or you're a livestock farmer, you're a grain farmer. So, you know, I've got to be a bit careful if I say I'm a grass farmer as to the connotations that might come out of that. Our land is our biggest investment. That's what costs the most money in our business. So it deserves the most love and the most care. So it can produce as well and as much as possible when it's able to. Because there's times when we don't have any rain, we need to rest. And other times when we have lots of grass around, we can bring significant numbers of stock in. So it changed the focus of our business onto how can we manage our landscape by doing what's best for it 
and again, we come back to this diversity. So we need a diversity of management, diversity of species, um, and included in that is diversity of, of mob sizes, diversity of time of grazing of paddocks, diversity of time of rest of paddocks. Um, and we just constantly change here. Every single thing is under review in our business except our communication. And we're always looking at ways to improve our communication, but our communication is paramount. And by that, our communication to our landscape, to our people, to our livestock. So we've got to make sure that we're communicating and monitoring them constantly so we can keep make good decisions in all aspects of our business. That's where soil health comes in. So we want to try and understand and improve our connection to our land. What's happening in their soil? Why is it improving? Is it improving? What can we do to improve it more? All those questions are ones we're asking and are just really part of that, that industry of improving soil health and, and talking with other regenerative farmers to see if we can, uh, see if we can do what we do better. I'll put a link to the detailed article on the Soils for Life website about your regenerative agriculture journey in our show notes so listeners can really drill deeper into what you have done and learned. What you've done is you've subdivided the property into smaller paddocks, although obviously smaller is relational in the scope of your property. So you buy and sell and graze to the conditions and graze more intensely for shorter periods. What Tell me, what does that do to the vegetation and why is that so beneficial for soil? So I guess we, we just harvest gently the, the grasses and the forbs and the herbs and the shrubs that are that are readily palatable and a lot of the rest of the plants are tromped into the ground. There's some beautiful footprints made which makes for, you know, good seed beds for other plants to grow and then there's given time and rest so that those other seeds can maybe germinate and grow or the, or the green plants can uh, regrow, re-harness their roots in the ground, uh, utilise the biology under the ground in the soil. And this sort of ebb and flow means that hopefully a, an outcome is we want to increase our green plants in our landscape year-round so that there is biology happening under the soil all times of the year. So this is about this diversity of plants and our focus is very clearly on plants we want, not plants we don't want. So we really don't, we choose not to see weeds in our landscape. Uh, many people might see that as naive. It's a way of thinking too that we focus on what we want. We don't put our energies and our focus on things that we don't want. So we walk out into a paddock, we might see some really nice grass and say, well, that's what we want. How can we manage for more of this? We're not going to look at uh, a Bathurst bear plant and say, Jesus, that's dreadful, Gus, you want to kill that. 
Because in the time I'm spending killing that weed, I could be managing for more of this other grass. And do I understand that plant, that Bathurst burr, for instance? Do I understand the biology of it? With all weeds, you've got to be careful that you don't shoot the messenger before you've read the message. And it's very, very true with weeds. You've got to understand the biology of the plants, why they're there. It's possibly a succession. While we've got seeds for every plant out in our rangeland environment, it's our management that dictates the seed bed. So it's our management that can dictate the sorts of plants that grow. And that's where our focus is on, is on creating a good seed bed for a diverse range of plants with a high number of palatable plants to grow in our landscape. I'm fascinated by the American autist Temple Grandin and how she has changed global stock handling systems and practices. Listeners, if you haven't seen the movie Temple Grandin, I cannot recommend it highly enough, both as an insight into autism and more ethical treatment of animals. I know your family have all attended the Low Stress Stock Handling School, LSSS. Can you tell me about that? You know, I thought I was a really good stockman. As it turned out, I wasn't, and I wasn't adequate to deal with large numbers of livestock. So I had to get some training. And so, you know, it's a bit like our trading of livestock. We, we thought we could run livestock, but we couldn't trade them very well. So we had to get some training there. And that's just part of our journey. So we did a low-stress stock handling school. Our son was riding in the backpack of Kelly. That was his first school. And he did another one, I think, when he was about 10. So we have all done the school. And low-stress stock handling is great because it's teaching your stock how to live a low-stress life. In order for them to have a low-stress life, They've got to learn how to cope with stress, how to deal with stress, because stress will turn up. You cannot hide from stress. And I think that this demonstrates that us as a community, we keep telling people they need to reduce stress in their lives when most people actually need to increase stress in their lives and they need to increase their tools of management of stress so they can cope with it. Temple Grandin has the ability to view through the eyes of an animal and then can then articulate that to people and say, do you realise this is a perception of what you just did and how the animal views it? Low-stress stock handling is taking a, a little step sideways maybe and saying, well, righto, we're going to cause some stress on these animals and we're going to teach them how to reduce pressure, how to reduce stress. And so that they know that they have control, they can make decisions, reduce stress and live a low-stress life and be comfortable in the paddock. Getting understanding of how you are being perceived, how you are being seen, then you get to understand their viewpoint a bit. And I'm not anywhere near as good as Temple Grandin. Uh, I probably can't aim that high. She's got some wonderful messages to deliver to us and certainly to help us understand our impact we have on livestock. 
So is that in the same way that with horses we teach them to do what we want them to do by making what we want them to do the easiest thing to do? Or, for instance, if you're moving cattle through a gate or whatever, you're just, you're just placing pressure at the right points, like psychological pressure, so they go through the gate. Is that what you mean? It's certainly around that, absolutely, and, and also the language too. You know, we talk about when we're, we're pushing stock up or, we're, or that's a forcing yard to force stock into the draft. You know, low-stress stock handling might talk about where we're leading stock up and we're, we've got a letting up yard, you know, because we let them up to the draft as we let them out after the draft. So the change in language so that the stock don't see that they're forced into the draft and so, gee, this is a dangerous area. We need to hurry up, get through here and get out. It's right. Oh, we just cruise through here. We're not under any danger here. We're safe. It's not as scary. So you've reduced your heart rate. Um, you've reduced the heart rate of everyone in the yards. Makes working livestock in the yards a, a lovely family day and a great opportunity to just talk about any matter of things while we're just working with our livestock nice and calmly and we're all talking in a nice calm voice and we're having a fun day out. And I guess I don't see enough livestock farmers see livestock handling in that way. It's, some of them are really frightened and not, well, maybe frightened's the wrong word, but get stressed themselves about handling livestock. So because they're stressed, the livestock instantly are stressed because they sense that and yeah, you're going to have a bad day. That's one of the reasons we like jerseys in our cattle herd because I go out there with a bucket of feed and they will follow me home. <laughs> we might have someone on foot. Sometimes we have someone on a horse just pushing from behind just to make sure we don't have any stragglers. Yeah. But we just lead them into the yards and then everyone's calm and we just do what we have to do. And as you say, no stress. We're not stressed. They're not stressed. Everyone's just absolutely fine. They know that there's no threat to them in the yards and we feel like there's no threat to us. And if we do have any crazy beasts, they're the ones that go. We just love working with our livestock. It's a joy. And we're livestock farmers, so it's it's beautiful working with animals. And, you know, I do a lot of work with people, not necessarily because I like working with people. I've got a passion for working with animals and people are just animals. And um, I sometimes say to people that if you feel I'm being harsh on you, you should tell me to uh, treat you like an animal and you might be pleasantly surprised. I was really struck by your intelligent comments on your blog at www.windhamstation.com.au. You wrote something so beautiful uh, about drought that resonated with me, with me so strongly as we begin to heal from the horror 
of our first drought on this property. And I'll quote you if you don't mind. One of the most distressing and confronting issues that happens in a drought is the smell of death. Death is never far away, whether it is livestock, native animals, birds, fish. Seeing these is a daily occurrence. It saps the life out of you. I just think that's so lyrical, Gus, and it is so true to our experience of last year. So tell us about your drought plan and how farmers can sometimes get themselves in a relentless drought feeding predicament. What the alternatives are and how you've managed your farm in this current drought and what government and other agencies could help with a policy Gee, you you like asking complex questions, Sophie. I'm glad you appreciated my words. Um, so there's a number of things in there. The attitude I take is that in a small business, the most valuable asset is your state of mind of the key decision makers in that business, that being predominantly Kelly and myself. We need to make good decisions to make sure we maintain and enhance our good state of mind. And that becomes extremely important in a drought because that's when you need management to make really, really good decisions. When I look around me, what I perceive is a lot of farmers get caught up letting the weather dictate their state of mind. So we have a good season there and a good frame of mind. Reality is out here, when you have a good season and get lots of grass, any mud could make a heap of money out here. It's easy. It's when things get tight, that's when you need good management decisions. And if that's when your state of mind is at a low ebb, you're not going to make good management decisions right when your business is just screaming for good management. So that's key in putting together our drought management plan. How do we make sure we make good decisions for our people? And I guess we try and view our business in the same way that um, you put together a Formula One racing car, in that you have the capsule that Kelly and I are in driving. That can't be harmed, not negotiable. We've got to be safe in there and we've got all these bits and pieces around us that can all just fly off and fall off and that doesn't matter. We've got to be absolutely fine. So we put together our livestock, and our business in a way that, like that, with a diverse range of mobs of stock, of, of investments, that they can all fall off. We can sell all them. And we are still in a good frame of mind. We're still safe. And I guess that's our key thinking with our drought, to, to be constantly planning, constantly reviewing, constantly communicating and that enables us to make good decisions. To, to start that, though, you've got to do that when things are good. It's very difficult for people to make change 
just see the opportunity to improve when things are good because most people are saying, well, I don't need a change. Everything's good now. It's all fixed. When it's not, you've got to prepare for our next drought and see that opportunity. I guess putting our state of mind as paramount. Another driver is that if we want our son Mitchell to come home and and look after the property and see the joys that we've seen, then we've got to make sure we have the ability to not just deal with tough situations. We set aside time to enjoy our life out here, to go on holidays. Uh, We make sure we're profitable so that we can have some joys in life and do some fun things so that Mitchell might just make a decision and say, yeah, I want to come home, not because he feels entrapped or, um, oh, I've got, to, I've got to do this to run the farm, because he sees it's actually not a bad way of life. I don't mind that. I, I think I could well and truly, you know, raise a family out here and live my life out here. It's beautiful. If we set that example now, then I think that's a key driver to our drought management as well. How do you make a profit in the drought years or do you make a profit in the wet years? I know you sold all your stock, didn't you, so that you didn't have the stress of feeding. I mean, I'm so admiring of the fact that you put mental health um, and your positive thinking at the heart of everything you do. You, You really are an inspiration to a lot of us. But just talk me through the the decision-making that allows you to still have an income even when you're sitting in a dust bowl. We had some funds that we'd put away for just this time in a farm management deposit, so we'd utilise that scheme that government had put in place for it, and we're very grateful for that and the ability to do that. And so we'd certainly had to tap into those funds through the time we've been in. I mentioned before about making decisions based on productivity or based on the environment. We had to focus our decisions on what's best for us, what's best for our environment and sell our livestock or make decisions not necessarily based on cash flow because when things are dry and getting dry, basing some decisions around we need the money or we just hang on to those stock and they'll be worth more in the springtime, for instance. You just can't afford to do that. You've got to not focus too much on the money at that time. So in order for that to happen, you've got to have a bit of a nest egg of funds behind you so that you're not focused too hard on the money and say, well, look, we've just got to make good decisions now around ourselves and our land, quit our livestock before they get into bad shape. Let's get down to a low number quickly that we know we can look after and um, we'll pick that profit up when it rains. We can't be focused on making money. Let's not focus on trying to make money through the drought. That's not the time when you need to be making money. You make money when, when it rains. That's when you make money. So you're buying stock at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, well, <laughs> buying and selling. Yesterday we, we sold a... 100 Scandin lamb ewes and we purchased uh, 265 young ewes that are unjoined, they're ewe lambs, trading in and trading out, generating some cash flow, identifying some stock, right? Oh, there, we don't really need those stock, let's 
let's get rid of them. Let's take a profit on those stock. Um, and let's get in some other stock that we might be able to make some profit out of. Generating some cash flow throughout the year that is assisting our bank account, keeps our bank manager happy, and and we're turning over some funds. So if the livestock markets fell away in the next few months, we would see some profits at high prices. Got some stock we bought at high prices, but we'd also be buying some stock at lower prices. It's just about, again, around a bit of diversity. We use a livestock marketing system called KLR Marketing um, that is really helpful, that gives us the ability to value our grass, value our time, and says, right, what class of livestock, why should we buy them at this price? What are we going to do with these livestock? How are we going to improve their value? So we might buy, dry use, put a ram with them and, and then scan them and sell them scanned in lamb that will be valued by someone else more than us. That's our sort of aim is to put value into our livestock and make sure we're using our grass as well as possible and make sure we're making good trading decisions. Have you kept any breeding stock? Do you have a pool of genetics that you do try and hold on to? Yeah, we have. We, we have been in a position in the past where we've sold all our livestock twice. And we recognise that we don't want to go there again. It takes too much to start up again. And there's stock that we enjoy and we've bought some good genetics and we want to make sure that we conserve some of those genetics. Reality is that might only be 20 or 30 or 40% of our uh, total grazing numbers. So we just carried through the drought was probably about 20% of our total grazing numbers that we might run on our property. Again, another driver to our decision-making in a drought is a written policy in our business that we do not hand-feed commercial livestock. In a way, that's pulling the safety net out from under the high wire. We've chosen to not put it there. We have no farming machinery. We have no grain silos, grain sheds. We don't have any of that. We don't want any of that. So because we choose not to have that safety net, that means we need to make good decisions early to sell our livestock. I saw a tweet of yours a few months ago about mulesing, which really surprised me because I thought mulesing was already illegal here. I kind of thought we'd had that argument a long time ago. Explain to us what is mulesing. For those who don't understand about faeces and flies, why tail docking and mulesing are still common practice here? And what what is the alternative? Australia at various times, as, as ridden on the sheep's back, and, and when they're talking about ridden on the sheep's back, that's merino sheep, predominantly wool. There are still high numbers of merino sheep. I can't tell you how many there are in Australia, but many millions. Breeding for wool, those sheep have been selected over a long period of time for high yields, as in high weights of wool that they cut. When you select for high weights, usually you decrease their bare area around their points, around their breech. That means ones and twos can go on their wool, that's wet, and then we've got this green blowfly in Australia which loves that environment to breed on, starts laying eggs, then those maggots get into the flesh and can kill sheep. Around about the 40s somewhere, they developed this practice of using uh, shears to cut off some of the wool around their breech and expand that bare area 
sector and their breach so that they then did have enough bare area so that they didn't wet their pants, for want of a better word, and create a harbour for blowflies. So it reduced fly strike by 90%. We haven't really moved on from there. You're not just removing the hair, you're actually like cutting the flesh to create a scar tissue area that creates a bare area. So there's a, a wider area around the anus and vagina so that when they urinate and defecate, that there is no opportunity for a dirtying that the flies are attracted to. Is that right or have I got that wrong? No, that's correct, Sophie. It's a look at it is a surgical procedure performed by either contractors or either way, they're unprofessional surgeons. There's a lot of people that that doesn't really sell it very well. There's a lot of people that do a really good job. It is cutting the skin, so there is blood involved. We use pain relief in the form of trisulfan, which is a lignocaine you put on the wound. I think it's actually a paediatric drug and that helps the sheep after you've cut them. From our perspective, with the genetics in the merino industry, this is where there's some conflicts. I don't like doing the job of musing. I dislike it intensely. I dislike more seeing uh, sheep that are fly-blown dying out in the paddock or having to be totally dependent on chemicals to keep flies out of those livestock. I love wool and I love dealing with wool sheep. I guess that's something I haven't found another way of dealing with it yet in our environment. Again, I need to find better methods. Maybe I just need to find some better genetics. We've tried genetics of stock and we've had to then chase those sheep around with a chemical to keep the flies away from them. While I don't like mulesing, I'm not going to replace mulesing with chemical. I dislike that more than mulesing. So it's a procedure done when the lambs are quite young and they recover, and then that's that's them for life. There are lots of things that PETA or vegans or vegetarians or people in the city look at in horror in farmers' lives and think, that's outrageous, that's terrible, that shouldn't be done like that. And I do understand that. I have been that person. Last year, we had a horse of ours is over 40 well over 40 and I found him under a tree smelling pretty bad and I'm not I still will never know what happened to him but he had basically ripped right across his flank from his anus and there were maggots in right up to my wrist and I spent a week cleaning and picking maggots and cleaning and picking maggots out of his ass basically without any hope that he would survive because I thought I don't think he can come back from this he is still running around the paddock happy as a sandboy it's very hard for a city person to understand how incredibly distressing it is to see your animals in pain how absolutely vile maggots are in flesh and how obviously as farmers we want to mitigate distress for our animals as much as possible and rather like castration or tail docking with bands, with pigs, you do it with incision, there are these moments where we do jobs that we do not like 
and we wish that we didn't have to do that make for a messy and unpleasant day both for the handler and for the animal but that are actually protecting them and creating better outcomes for them in the rest of their life. That's pretty right, Sophia. Look, I'm not defending mulesing. I'd love to do better and I would really like us to find a way not to do it. Uh, At the moment, though, I'm struggling with finding a better option. And again, it's my love of wool sheep. I reckon they're wonderful sheep, merino sheep. I'm really, really happy and would be excited to be part of looking for better options, though. It can be really hurtful when when a group accuses farmers of just outright cruelty because they've missed the why we didn't. And I think you summed that up really well, that sometimes we have to make decisions that involve not nice jobs but are done for the right reasons so that that animal can then live a happier life for the rest of their life. So in a good year or in a good season, now you have mixed, don't you? Do you have cattle as well as sheep? Well, I suppose, I mean, it depends on so many variables as you've already explained to us. But give me a sense of what you might be running. The normal is there is no normal. We do some grass measurements and do some feed budgets again by using our eyes and our intuition. That's how we make decisions about should we run more stock. At the moment... We might have 3,500 dry sheep equivalents or nearly 4,000 dry sheep equivalents on Wyndham. We've run up to 12,000 here before and done that very, very easily and been understocked. And then there's times when we've struggled to run 1,000 DSEs because we haven't had enough food. Willow Point isn't as far down the track as us. We haven't had the history of grazing management, so we don't seem to get the productivity. We don't see the diversity of plants over there. We don't grow as much feed. We might average, say, eight to 10,000 DSCs across the two properties, but that might involve us getting closer to 20,000 some years. And So DSE, explain that. I'm sorry, Sophie. A dry sheep equivalent, it's a, based on a 45-kilogram weather, how much they eat to maintain their body weight. If stock are obviously 60 kilos, they're going to eat more food than a 45-kilo weather. If they've got a lamb on them and they're lactating, they're going to eat more food. If a cow's got a calf or if a cow's in its last trimester of pregnancy, they're going to eat more. So it's based on a 45-kilogram weather and how much it would take to maintain that in a reasonable body condition score. And what cattle do you run? What is your preference? Cattle that taste nice. Cattle that that, um, grow beef in 2010 and 11. We bought, I don't know, five or six hundred head of cattle came from pastoral WA over to us and we loved having them. And these were heifers and I know some in northern Australia might call them humpy backs. Um, They're just with some Brahmin influence so they can get a hump over their back. And these animals, they hadn't seen mankind very much so they came off the truck and they, some of them certainly wanted to go you with a knife. Like they were fairly angry when they got off the truck and it was a great joy to settle them down over a few weeks and, you know, and get them to the stage where they enjoyed being part of our system. And, you know, after a couple of years on our place, we joined all those to Angus Bulls. So in a way, just painted their calves black, 
but those cattle were lovely cattle and and I'd have those sort of cattle again in a heartbeat. Much better behaved than some of the cattle we've got from further south that have been dulled by such close contact continually that has actually brought about their, um, I don't know, just being dull and, and disinterested in, in people around them, whereas these cattle haven't seen much handling. And so when you provide them some good handling, they're really responsive and and we just found them wonderful to work with. They're just beautiful cattle and I love working with them because they're so sensitive and so... Now, you and I have a shared passion for polo. I am absolutely crap at polo. I can't tell you how bad I am. I mean, I haven't had that many opportunities, but it makes me laugh. I can't tell you. It's like surfing. It's something that brings me such incredible joy and it's such a thrill for me when I actually hit the ball. I love the challenge, the spectacle, the extraordinary skill in both the players and the horses. How did you come to polo? And explain it. For those who don't know or who think it's some elite sport, which, you know, let's face it, it, it can be because horses are expensive and so are grooms, etc. Tell me about where you play and the joy it brings you. Just one of my bad habits, playing polo. I didn't really know how to ride. I reckon I had a pony when I was really young at school and this pony was a real little mongrel and used to swipe me off on trees and look to offload me and I couldn't ride. And so I very quickly just said, well, stuff the horses. I'm happy with a motorbike. And then I went to Longreach Pastoral College in central Queensland and we had to learn how to ride. So I learned how to ride it. My father's always played a bit of polo around here. He got into it because a large property around here started a polo club to keep their jackaroos at home on the weekend and stop them going out and getting drunk on the town. And so Dad did it just because it was great for great social time. So when I came back from Longreach, I started playing a bit of polo and a bloke called Pat McGinley who played polo for Australia and fantastic polo player and a really great mentor of mine, he, and he offered me a job. Well, I couldn't play polo for whatever. The only thing I brought with it was a sense of humour and a work ethic. So I worked in polo, training polo ponies for about four years. Came out of there just absolutely broke. Spent far more money than I earned. Had a cracking time around Australia playing polo and training polo ponies. And so since then, I guess I've just always played polo and I make my own horses, make my own bridles. So it enables me to do it reasonably cheaply. I buy thoroughbred mares and love playing them and, you know, really just enjoy the challenge of making a horse, of just finding better ways to uh, play a lovely game. And, you know, it's just the, the camaraderie of playing polo. It's only four in a team. You might have four or five horses each. Um, so it's quite a challenge to get to know your competition because you're the people you play against, they're going to have four or five different horses. You're going to have four or five different horses. You've got to try and use your strengths and try and nullify their strengths, all those sorts of things. So I reckon it's just a wonderful challenge and, and just a joy for me. It's something that Kelly and I can go out and train the horses and we share our love for horses. Most of the time my horses are out. My horses are out for 10 months of the year. I run them like livestock, make sure they don't get too fat because otherwise they're too hard to get fit. And so I manage their weight. And then we bring them into work and, and play through, uh, through February, March in SA. So I've got to drive across near Adelaide in the Adelaide Hills 
which is probably five or six hours in a truck, and it just makes it all worthwhile. Catch up with mates and and have a few weekends playing polo, and it's a it's a great joy. You only have one son, Mitchell. Does he love the farm? Will he stay there? Do you think? When I talk to generational farmers, I often feel that they carry a weight of responsibility that can be a real burden that they don't want to be the person who loses the farm, the person who sells the farm, the person who walks off the land or whose child or children do the same. How do you feel about that and about Mitchell taking over one day? If we make Mitchell see that life on the land is is good, you can find ways to cope with tough times. We have good communication. So we involve Mitchell in our decision-making. We involve him in some of our business meetings when he's home. All those things are critically important so that hopefully when Mitchell comes to making decisions, he can make good decisions based on his experiences, based on our experiences, and he'll be able to be empowered to say, I can run a property because I feel I've got the skills, I feel I've got the communication, and I can build on the connection and build on the foundations that mum and dad have given me. We'd certainly encourage him to go and, and seek a wide range of experiences elsewhere so that he can bring his ideas and his energy and enthusiasm back on the farm and, and make this property his and make it so it, um, it achieves all the goals and, and uh, aims and aspirations that he has. And if he were to sell it, how would you feel about that? With the c- communication that we're teaching and have taught Mitchell, he'd put forward a proposal of why, how he's going to sell it, what's he going to do with the funds, how he wants to live his life, what he's going to get out, gain out of selling it, what's the benefits, why he thinks it's a good decision for him and his family. We're going to say, I oh, know, so you've put a lot of thought into this. You're just going to understand his thinking and understand how he's reached the decision he's reached. We're going to say, yeah, we understand. We're absolutely, we're right with you. You have such a great philosophy about family and work-life balance, caring for community and others and sharing your hard-won wisdom. Tell me about and the leather work you love and the community organisations that you work with. The leather work is a bush skill that's dying out. How did you learn it and why do you love it so much? I started doing leather work at, when I was at Longridge Pastoral College and so that's where I first learned it. Then I guess I've always just made a few belts and then started making bridles when I got into polo. And I've just, I don't know, it's just something that I've built up a bit of uh, a few tools. It's just a hobby that I, I do really enjoy doing. To, I just find it so relaxing to sit down and just focus on on just stitching together a bit of leather or doing some plaiting. I remember someone telling me, which I thought was really good thinking, you know, we all might set aside 9.5% of our income in the form of superannuation for when we retire. How many people would spend 9.5% of their time developing a hobby or something they can do, maybe when their working life or their physical life is on the wane? And, and that sort of struck a chord with me. I do have some skills and, and really enjoy being around enthusiastic volunteers that just want to be part of like let's just kick start this community let's let's just do something fun let's let's see if we can entertain the community and boost their morale at times when they need to it or or um, you know harness their energy enthusiasm and, and help other people in our community that need some uplifting so I, I just enjoy that and and you know I just love communities for that 
I'm such an admirer of your commitment to personal growth, positive thinking and quality of life. Your honesty about that and mental health, it's a rare gift, particularly, you know, for men and for male farmers who find it very hard to talk about emotions and challenges. Have you always been like that or was there an event or a turning point which made you realise that this short life that we live is ours to craft? There's been a number of things that have shaped my life. I, uh, just after I left school, I went. I was lucky enough to get a AFS, an American Field Scholarship, and went to Spain for 10 weeks. I didn't know any Spanish and I stayed with a family near Seville who didn't know much English. Being an extrovert, that was probably the toughest time of my life. I didn't know anyone. Well, sorry, there was one English person that I could communicate like you and I are talking for three days in that 10 weeks. The rest of the time, I had to try and make myself understood. That was really tough because you have lots of words and you've got no one to portray them to, that gave me a real insight as to who I was because I had to get to know myself better because I was the only person I could talk to. And that's really, really important, I reckon, to be understand yourself and know yourself because I'm really comfortable on my own because I do know myself well. Uh, you know, normally I'm really lonely in a city because... I'm surrounded by people who really don't care for me, they don't know me, they don't rely on me, they don't depend on me, uh, and I feel very lonely. Whereas here out on the farm, I know there's lots of animals that depend on me. You know, there's dogs that love me, there's people that love me, there's neighbours that will ring up and check in on you. You know, all the people and animals around me depend on me or love me or both. And I just, I really appreciate that. So... That was a key part. And also working with horses, I'm not really sure, but at some stage I worked out that if I put a smile on my face and relaxed, myself and the horse would have a good day. So then I started to value my own state of mind enormously because I knew that if I turned up for work in a bad frame of mind, chances are this horse would drop its head and I'd go sailing over the front, slam into the dirt. So I started to place a really high value on my state of mind and to keep me happy. Now, people might say that you're lucky to have a happy demeanour. It's not too much luck. In order to maintain that, it means that if there's something that's causing stress and angst and worry to me, I need to make some decisions and I need to do that right now. No putting it off. I need to do that right now because if I um, have something like that worry in my brain and it's filling up my brain space, I don't have too much brain capacity uh, and I might not be thinking of what this horse is going to do and I don't have a good enough connection with this horse and that's when again I'll feel that dirt come towards me very quickly uh, because I'm just not thinking and my brain's not where it needs to be. So I've learnt 
through those key things about learning to, to know myself better and about the impact of myself on animals to put a high value on my mental health and my well-being. And that comes about through making decisions timely, identifying what's impacting on me and make some decisions around that or saying, well, it's impacting on me and I can't do anything about it, so I need to get that out of my brain. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. As I said to you before, I think you're a real inspiration to so many people. It's such a pleasure following you on Twitter and as always, I've learned so much from you, Gus. Thank you very much, Sophie. It's a delight to speak to you, to engage with you. And thank you to to you for listening to our meandering conversations with Australian farmers. I hope you feel more connected to country and where your food comes from. If you have questions or comments, you can find The Naked Farmers on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook or wherever you get your pods. See you next time. Till then, whatever you do, stay safe.